Well, I'm Vivian Feiler. I'm the founder and chair of the board for the Cotton Club Museum and Cultural Center. And I, I feel the role of CEO as well because we went from uh, a restoration project to uh, an incorporation. We sit at a table with fold-up chairs set up for a community event. Her voice echoes off the high wooden ceilings. The historic wood-framed building, now the Cotton Club Museum and Cultural Center, is steeped in Black history. Notably, in the 1950s, it was a Black-owned club and music venue that headlined big names like B.B. King and Bo Diddley in East Gainesville. At the turn of the century, this history was almost lost. Since the 50s, the building had changed hands several times and served many purposes. In 1970, as a furniture warehouse, after which it sat vacant. In 2018, a ribbon cutting marked the restoration and reopening of the historic building with the help of Ms. Filer and money from local grants. Today, she says, the Museum and Cultural Center is a testament to Black joy in East Gainesville. Ms. Filer reflects on what preserving African-American and Black history means to America's youth in Gainesville and across the country. I think you feel whole, I think you feel connected, I think you feel as if you belong when you know you're not separate from. They are America's history. This is a production by WUFT News. I'm your host, Gabriella Paul. In this episode, we will highlight moments of Black joy in the United States and in Florida. Some of these moments are widely recognized, like Emancipation Day, now a federal holiday, while other moments have come close to being forgotten. In Ocala, we'll meet Cynthia Wilson-Graham, who undertook a project to preserve the history of Paradise Park and Silver Springs, a shining example of Black joy in Central Florida. And beyond Marion County, we'll discover the ways that segregation and the Jim Crow South impacted access to Florida's waterways. This podcast is the result of ongoing conversations with K-12 teachers, university scholars, and community leaders in Alachua and Marion counties, all in an effort to evoke the complexity of Black lives in Florida. This series is made possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope grant. On June 17, 2021, President Joe Biden rubber-stamped the Juneteenth National Independence Day Act. It made June 19th a federal holiday, the first new federal holiday in nearly 30 years. On this day, Vice President Kamala Harris addressed the nation from the White House. So throughout history, Juneteenth has been known by many names. Jubilee Day, Freedom Day, Liberation Day, Emancipation Day, and today, a national holiday. (laughs) The day marks the anniversary of the announcement of General Order No. 3 by Union Army General Gordon Granger on June 19, 1865, proclaiming freedom for enslaved people in Texas. More than two years earlier, President Abraham Lincoln had famously signed the Emancipation Proclamation as a war strategy, freeing enslaved persons in Confederate states only. 
But the news did not exactly travel fast. This meant enslaved people found out about their newfound freedom at different times. June 19th marks that day for Texans and is nationally celebrated as the last acknowledgement of the Emancipation Proclamation. In Florida, this day came a month before June 19th. On May 20th, 1865, emancipation was proclaimed in Tallahassee, 11 days after the end of the Civil War. Thus, in Florida, Emancipation Day is celebrated on May 20th every year. Eighty-four years later, on Emancipation Day in Florida, the state's only all-black roadside attraction opened in Ocala. Paradise Park opened in 1949 and remained open until integration forced its closure in 1969. In the two decades it was open, the park became a national attraction and safe haven to black Americans. A place for swimming and dancing, picnicking and gathering, recreation and joy, despite a time when racial violence was at its height in Florida. Cynthia Wilson Graham is the co-author of Remembering Paradise Park, Tourism and Segregation at Silver Springs, a project she began as an effort to preserve the park's history. I joined her at the place that was the subject of her research. We walked across a wooden planked boardwalk on the north side of the park first. We're at the entrance of Civil Springs, an entrance that minorities could not enter between the years of 1949 and 69 up until the park closed. Here, whites could enter the attraction owned by Carl Ray and Shorty Davidson. As if an invisible line had been drawn through the water, black and white parkgoers shared the same crystal clear water and glass bottom boats, but were divided between the north and south ends of the park. Down the river, Paradise Park was managed by longtime boat captain Eddie Vereen. With special permission, Wilson Graham showed me there next. We actually had to travel down Paradise Road where Paradise Park guests would actually enter the park on the south end of Civil Springs. Accompanied by a park ranger, we walked the shoreline at the original site of the black-only park. We're at the grounds of Paradise Park. This is actually where Paradise Park was. Following World War II, tourism boomed in Florida. In Wilson Graham's book, one historian puts it, Silver Springs was the Disney World of its time. In its heyday, Paradise Park attracted nearly 100,000 black guests a year. But Wilson Graham says you wouldn't be able to tell today. It's washed away, it's washed out, it's demolished. The grass is overgrown where a paved pavilion and jukebox used to play 45s, records with classic songs from that era. On the waterfront, a wooden ladder rots among stray tree branches left from when the park closed in the late 60s. The only indication that this site was a destination at all is the gravel road that leads to it. But if you look at that pristine water right down there, we had a beautiful beach here at Paradise Park, but this area of the park is no longer accessible to guests. And we don't have a sign on the water side to show that it even existed. The boats don't even go down the river far enough to even talk about it. But we want the community to know the park existed 
and we still have memories and this area needs to be preserved. As she did in researching her book, Remembering Paradise Park, Wilson Graham relied on the stories of park goers, boat drivers, and lifelong Ocala residents to reconstruct its history. In an interview with the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program, Larissa Lake reminisces on what Paradise Park meant to her. She was a model for the park in the 40s and 50s. In one postcard, she's pictured lounging on a horseshoe palm tree beside the river in a red bathing suit. The river belongs to everyone, but during years in the time of my life, there was a separation always, and they even wanted to separate the waters. But that was one of the things that we learned to live with and accept and appreciate it because Paradise Park was fixed up very nice and all of that was available to black people and people from everywhere in the United States visited. The Glass Bottom Boat Tours for the white and black only parks were worked primarily by black boat captains. In an oral history interview, Ann Pinkston says once enough black riders had gathered, they could call a boat from Silver Springs to Paradise Park. And so they would have boats, glass bottom boats come there, pick up people from Paradise Park, take them all the way back up Silver Springs, see all the fish shows and so forth in the Silver River there, and take us back down to Paradise Park. Mark Emery, now in his 60s, grew up in Ocala. We ride in a speedboat through the spring's back-channel waterways that he's long since memorized. Now an award-winning wildlife cinematographer, Emery tells me he used to work as a glass-bottom boat captain as a teenager. He says he learned the ropes from the black boat captains like Virginia Ferguson and Roosevelt Faison, who continued working for Silver Springs even after Paradise Park closed. Great, great folks. They, they talked about this place every day. And on a busy day in the summer when I worked there, there'd be 14 trips a day. You do 14 and a half hours. Good afternoon, I'll be your driver and guide for the next 30 minutes down the Silver River. And off you went. And they did that for years. Through the glass bottom boat, riders could spot schools of catfish, turtle meadows, and places where iconic underwater scenes were shot in many famous movies, including six Tarzan films. Up on the shore at Paradise Park, teenagers danced under the shaded pavilion, fit with a jukebox, gift shop, and soda fountain. Families picnicked on the grass nearby the sandy beach where lifeguards watched over swimmers. On Sundays, churches baptized congregants in the spring. On Labor Day, an annual beauty pageant brought droves of visitors. And every Christmas, Timothy Howard dressed as Santa Claus on a glass-bottom boat for the children. Another loyal parkgoer and civil rights activist, Dorsey Miller, said paradise extended beyond the park's borders, too, to West Broadway Avenue. Broadway used to be much different than what you see in now. Broadway was, was a happening place, a happening street. Extremely busy, a lot of black businesses and what have you. And O'Kella back then was absolutely a beautiful place for us to live in, even though it was segregated. It was really like a, like a Tom Sawyer, Huck, Huckleberry Finn experience. Nicknamed O'Kella's Little Harlem, it was a mecca of black joy and prosperity, attracting black entrepreneurs and musicians. Famous in Ocala at this time, Willie Eason, 
pioneered playing the sacred steel guitar, a vibrato that often filled the corner of 20th Avenue and Broadway. Though today is only a memory of what was. In 1969, in the wake of integration, Paradise Park quietly closed, one of the many losses to Ocala's Black community during this time. Wilson Graham explains that, as is often the case, white and Black spaces weren't preserved equally after integration. Oftentimes, we look at integration as something that we wanted. Some did want integration and some did not want integration. They went to Silver Springs, it was no longer their park. They couldn't do what they wanted to do. There was cultural differences between the two different parks. So you completely demolished what could have been a part of the park and just let it sit as it is now, dormant. In 2015, thanks to Wilson Graham's advocacy, a historical marker for Paradise Park was installed on Baseline Road, a half mile away from the main entrance of Silver Springs Park. She hopes one day a Riverside marker will be installed too, and that the routes for parkgoers and boat riders be extended to once again acknowledge a place that represented Black joy to so many. Under the South's Jim Crow laws, Black Americans were faced with significant restrictions when it came to going to the beach. African-American history professor Andrew Carl explains the situation. Anytime you see a city or town in the coastal South investing in their beachfront, or you see a lot of commercial development happening along their beachfront, invariably you're going to see efforts to segregate those spaces and exclude African-Americans from using it. The outright bans of Black Americans on white-only sands led to the creation of coastal safe spaces, otherwise known as Black Beaches. Black Beaches were often identified in a series of books known as the Green Books, written by Victor Hugo Green. In Florida, a popular Green Book destination was American Beach on Amelia Island. WUFT's Christina Puglisi has more on American Beach and another popular spot for Black beachgoers, Manhattan Beach. Like in so many other southern states during the Jim Crow era, Florida's white-only beaches limited black Americans' access to coastal areas. It's why some black beaches in the state were incredibly popular. One beach was Manhattan Beach in Duval County, where current-day Catherine Abbey Hannah Park is located. Manhattan was a safe space for the community to collectively enjoy the beach without worry from white guests. Adjunct history professor at the University of North Florida, Brittany Cohill, says Manhattan's creation in the year 1900 was a milestone for black Americans across the South. As far as the historical record shows at this moment in time, it appears as though Manhattan Beach is the first black beach resort in the southeastern United States. Although its existence lasted nearly four decades, Cohill explains it had its issues when compared to the white coastal areas like Jacksonville Beach. There wasn't as much funding and there wasn't as much infrastructure there, too. So Manhattan Beach was more susceptible to major storms that would come through, beach erosion. And so sometimes these structures were endangered by nature and and some of them would wash out into the ocean and have to be rebuilt and things of that nature. Whereas in Jacksonville Beach, you know, there was greater infrastructure, more funding, more revenue. But for what it was, it provided a multi-purpose safe space for Black Americans to enjoy. 
Although the beach was mainly used for recreational purposes, it was also used for medicinal purposes. Coordinator of Special Collections at the Thomas G. Carpenter Library, Jennifer Bibb, explains how known philanthropist Eartha M.M. White used the beach medicinally. She had a fresh air camp that she would take children who were ill, take them to stay out there for like a month or a few weeks. Manhattan Beach closed in the 1930s, around the time when another black beach in the Jacksonville area opened up to the public in 1935. American Beach was like, oh, it was just people. One time it was the only black beach on the East Coast, on the Southeast Coast, and people came from everywhere here. It was just a big party every weekend. That's Ronald Miller, the founder and tour guide of Coast One Tours, who spent his childhood playing in American sand dunes. The beach area was originally purchased by one of Florida's first black millionaires, A.L. Lewis, who used the money from his group, the Afro-American Life Insurance Company. At its peak, the beach was over 216 acres, and its nightclubs, hotels, and restaurants hosted numerous black celebrities over the years. It was a nightclub called Evans Rendezvous. And that's where everybody gathered. The adults gathered at Evans. The kids, we had a, had our own little game room called El Patio. And basically the only time we went in Evans was to get money to either buy ice cream or go to the game room. He says his favorite memories come from the car races on the beach. At low tide, they would, they, guys came from all over the southeast and they had these little souped up cars and it was fun to me. And one of the guys who was a driver was my neighbor from right down the street. And uh, he'd start on Thursday night putting some pieces together. And then Saturday morning, he'd have about have it all together and they'd go out and race. He, he won almost all the time. He says while there, everyone cared for each other. It was a village. Everybody was everybody's parents. Everybody was everybody's child. It was just a great place to grow up. It was a great place to be. Nowadays, the beaches look a lot different and are a lot quieter. But at their peaks, Manhattan and American beaches provided the black community with a coastal safe space at a time where safety for black Americans was sparsely guaranteed. It's easy to look at Paradise Park. American Beach and Manhattan Beach, and efforts to preserve them as a desire to never forget a complicated history of segregation and Jim Crow in America. But African-American history professor Andrew Carl says preserving history and bringing awareness of Black peaches is key for two reasons. Gaining a better sense of how recreation and leisure was an important element in the Black freedom struggle in the 20th century and still today, but also as well in ensuring that places that had really played such a vital role in helping to shape Black culture and community life over the course of the 20th century can continue to do so to this day. Essentially, these places represent for their communities reminders of Black joy. Black joy is a specific term coined by members of the Black community that aims to remind people there's more to the Black experience than sorrow. National Civil Rights Museum Director of Interpretation, Collections, and Education, Dr. Noelle Trent, explains more. Black joy means to me celebrating who I am, who my community is, what my culture is, to the fullest extent, without restraint, without explanation just the ability to be. But Dr. Trent notes we shouldn't look at history with either a positive or negative lens, but rather just look at it with a fuller perspective. How do we learn more of a complete Black story? How does that happen? Because you can't have the joy without the sorrow. 
right? You can't have the sunshine without the rain. Like they exist in conjunction with each other and you can't appreciate one without the other. Many historical events, especially in communities like the Black community, have had the benefit of greater attention and resources allocated to them to bring a better understanding to how undercovered people and events fit into Florida and American history. In our next episode, we will highlight five unsung heroes in the Gainesville community to help bring some of that fuller perspective. This podcast is made possible by a Florida Humanities Broadcasting Hope grant. It was inspired by a series of community workshops called Decolonizing Representations, led by Dr. Amanda Concha-Holmes, who also serves as a director of this grant. A special thanks to all of the experts and community members who contributed to this podcast. Miss Vivian Filer, Cynthia Wilson-Graham, Mark Emery, Andrew Carl, Ronald Miller, Brittany Cohill, Jennifer Bibb, and Dr. Noel Trent. Christina Puglisi contributed to the reporting in this episode. Thanks to the Cotton Club Museum and Cultural Center, which hosted an event associated with the production of this podcast. Thanks also to Ryan Marini at the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program, who provided tape of archival interviews with Larissa Lake, Ann Pinkston, and Dorsey Miller. This episode was written by Gabriella Paul and Ryan Basquez, who is also the executive producer. And I'm your host, Gabriella Paul. For more information, please visit wuft.org slash broadcasting hope. Yeah.